Amen. How are we doing? All right. That's a finals are approaching kind of excitement. Um, <laughs> we're glad you're here. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here at Redeemer. Thanks for joining us today. We got uh, some baptisms happening. That we don't normally just have a horse trough in, in the gathering, but we do today because we're having three baptisms, and we're excited to celebrate those. So that'll be a lot of fun here coming up. Um, I, I shared with everyone last week uh, just kind of the, the reality of, of kind of situation we are facing as a congregation, which is that this building, some of you may think, oh, you have a lovely home here. Well, this actually isn't our building. Um, we've been renting here and sharing this facility with the, the church that owns the, the property for the last uh, two and a half years. Um, and unfortunately, that our, our rental agreement will not be able to be renewed after the, the, the time it expires this coming May, at the end of May 2018. Uh, so just a few, about six months uh, or so from now, uh, we need to find a, a new home. So we are in searching for that, um, but there's several realities that we do face. Though so we are uh, a young church and a growing church and, and in many ways healthy financially for a church that's about five years old. Uh, in fact, a lot of the accounting service we work with tells us we're in really good shape for a church that's five years old. However, for a church that's five years old and may need to buy a building, um, we're a long way off from that because the reality is to buy a property, you need about 40 to 50% of that money up front down payment uh, to purchase the property. We are, however, still looking at things. In fact, I uh, got a call. We're going to look at a property on Friday. No, no promises that that will be like what we need. But even looking at that property, we, we would need uh, several hundred thousand dollars, a few hundred thousand dollars more than what we have uh, to, to be able to even move forward with that. So with that, we're kind of putting before you, again, uh, just the opportunity fund is what we called it. Um, and really the opportunity fund is we're praying for an opportunity, right, that the Lord would give us to, to find a hopefully, eventually a more permanent um, home. Although we, we also value here the reality that, that the church is not a building or where it meets. The church is the people of God. And so there very well may be a season or a year or two where we kind of return to kind of going more mobile. You know, Sunday, set up, tear down kind of stuff, um, whether, whether that's at a school or something like that. Um, we're open to that as well because the church is not the building and the church is the people. And we really want to give ourselves first and foremost to the mission that God's given us to take the gospel to our city. Um, so we're, we're kind of keeping all options up on the table and looking as best we can. Um, if you know Bloomington well, you know property's not cheap here, and it's also not readily available uh, at the space kind of needs that we are getting to have as a, as a congregation. So invite your prayers and invite you to prayerfully consider how you might give to the Opportunity Fund uh, before the end of the year to kind of help us bolster our ability to maybe respond if an opportunity presents itself. Um, also, I need to uh, let you know, uh, who loves the city? That's kind of probably what I thought. Um, yeah. Um, that we have been grateful for using the city, which is kind of our online community network. If you're newer here and you don't know what the city is, that's what that is. Kind of an online platform for us to engage and play in and, and kind of stay connected throughout the week online. Um, and, and the city is getting an upgrade. Who's excited about that? Uh, we are excited about that. It's going to be much more helpful, especially on the staffing as far as some administrative uh, needs that we have, but also it should be much more user-friendly and hopefully engaging for you to want to, to use it a little bit more. Um, and so we're upgrading the city with the same company that, that puts that out to a new platform called Realm, uh, which is just an upgraded, uh, better version uh, of that. Um, and so that will happen for us by January 8th is the day that we will switch officially from the city to realm, okay? And here's the beautiful thing. 
All of your stuff, you're on the city, will get moved over for you. You just have to sign in, log in, and your account's right there, okay? Um, uh, If you have regular scheduled giving on the city, that will get transferred over for you too. Now, if you kind of one-off your giving through the city, then you will have to kind of go back in and re-enter all of your stuff. That stuff won't just migrate for you. Uh, But the recurring gifts will... um, the, the accounts move over. So basically, um, at this point, we'll just be switched over to Realm by January 8th. We will be updating you in the coming weeks just to be prepared for that because we want to try to get all of you over there. And then by January 8th, we'll exclusively be using Realm. The city will be no more. And so if you want to know what's going on, staying up to date and connected with things, you need to sign in when you get that invite to your new account on, on Realm that will be moved over for you. If you have any questions, um, Nathan's kind of running point for that, uh, on, for, on that for us. And so you can email him, Nathan at RedeemerBloomington.org. Don't email me. I don't know anything about the city or Realm. Um, so uh, ask Nathan for that. Okay? All right. It's uh, probably, I, I would assume, our last Sunday with uh, students here, at least most of you, uh, for a few weeks, uh, which means that it's also finals week, Right? Who's excited for finals? I'm excited for finals because I don't have to take any. Um, right? And, and finals week means that uh, the anxieties are, are building for probably many of our friends here in the room. Uh, many of you maybe have came today because of those anxieties. Maybe this would be a good thing to do. I'll show up. I'll, I'll come to church. I'll pray. Um, we're glad you're here. We're glad you're here if that's what led you here. Um, so uh, anxieties are abounding for our students. But, but it's also Christmas time. Right, And there's all the hustle and the bustle and the shopping and gift giving and trying to find the right gift for people and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the, the family, difficult family relationships that a lot of us have or, or you're trying to navigate those kind of connections and what that's going to be like and crazy Uncle Larry's going to be there and how, how do we get along with all that. And, and that breeds a lot of anxiety in, in a lot of us as well. And so a lot of us are just b- dealing with a lot of anxiety at this time of the year in particular. But really, um, anxiety isn't just a finals week thing or a Christmas season kind of thing either. Uh, at this point in our culture, it's, it's really becoming a, a big thing for, for a lot of people all of the time, right? All of the time. Uh, the statistics say that about 40 million adults age 18 and older in the United States have been diagnosed with some kind of anxiety disorder. That's roughly 18% a little over 18% of the population. Uh, and that's just those who have been diagnosed with an anxiety disorder. That does include probably a lot of folks who kind of wrestle with that, going undiagnosed and not really knowing what to do with, with some of that too. So, so really, uh, you, you, you start to realize that anxiety is a growing epidemic in, in our culture, right? It's becoming a real epidemic in our society. And, and though this season is filled with, you know, the consumerism and, and then there's the reality of the fact that you and all of your family members that you might be getting together with are all sinful, broken people, and that creates stress and anxiety. We, we do realize, though, that the real meaning of Christmas, if we really get through the whole hustle and bustle of the consumerism and the gift giving and all that nonsense, the real meaning of Christmas actually addresses our stress, and anxiety, our depression, and it, and it brings to us in the midst of that glorious good news, glorious good news, for our promised king is a king of peace. He's a king of peace. That's what we're going to see in our text today, Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 through 10. I invite you to turn there in your Bibles um, and stand with me for the reading of God's word. 
It's on page 575 in those Bibles on your row. Isaiah 11. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. And he shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor. And decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. And with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist. And faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb. And the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together. And a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious." This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, uh, we thank you for this day uh, to just uh, gather and, and celebrate uh, the hope that you give us, the, the peace that you bring through your Son who came to live for us, to die for us, to rise for us, and, and didn't just come 2,000 years ago, but is coming again to return in glory and to usher in his kingdom in the fullness of the peace that he's bringing with him. Lord, we pray that, that you would give us hope. Um, I know in a room like this, there, there are many who are wrestling with, with anxiety and depression and, and struggling, whether it's just the seasonal stuff of, of dealing with uh, the, the, hard in, the end of a hard semester, um, the busyness and the stress of the holidays, um, grieving the loss of, of loved ones, whatever it might be, Lord, you, you know the hearts of the people in this room. And I pray today that you would open their hearts to, to be encouraged by the peace that you bring, even now in the midst uh, of the, the struggle. We pray that you would help us to, to worship you, to live our lives for your glory in every way possible. It's in Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may have a seat. In this, in this passage, Isaiah is once again uh, sharing with us a, 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 you know, a, a prophecy about the promised king who's coming. Right? And he tells us in this, in this passage who he is and what he will be like. He, he also shows us what he will bring. And then finally, Isaiah points us on how to, how to receive it, uh, how to receive what it is that he, he's bringing. So first, he, he tells us who he is and what he will be like. And we need to remember, once again, like we said last week, we're in Isaiah 9, that, that Isaiah is writing these words more than 700 years before the birth of, of Jesus Christ, right? He's writing these 700 years ago. He, he's also speaking to a, a, a people who are dealing with a great amount of anxiety in this moment. 
right? There's looming military powers rising around them and, and threatening them. And rather than turning to God, trusting in God's promises, trusting in his deliverance for them, they have sought their, their own wisdom. They have sought to kind of make a deliverance for themselves, right? They've turned from God, turned to their own wisdom, turned to the wisdom of the world. And so God has responded by telling them uh, what this means, right? The people of God are going to be reduced to this faithful remnant. That's what Isaiah's ministry is. You're going to preach and they're going to leave, right? And there's just going to be a few left, a few faithful people left, and they will be there, uh, a faithful remnant. Eventually, down the road, the people of Judah are going to be taken into exile. That's coming as a result uh, of their sin and their disobedience and their, their unfaithfulness. Yet in the midst of these words of judgment, God, God reminds his people through the prophet Isaiah of his promise and that he is not backing out on his promise. He will be faithful to his promises. He will, he will be faithful to his word. And, and so in the midst of all that, through Isaiah, God, God gives a word of, of good news, of, of hope. Right? Beyond the immediate future of the remnant and exile that's coming, there, there is a promised king who will come. Who will bring deliverance. Not just deliverance from the powers that are rising around them, the immediate threats, but ultimate deliverance. Ultimate and final deliverance from the ultimate oppressors and enemies of Satan, sin, and death. God will keep his word to, to Abraham, right? That through his, his descendants, through his, God's chosen people, through the line of Abraham, he will indeed bring a blessing to all nations. He's going to keep his word, his promise to, to King David. That from the throne of David will usher in salvation for all the world. He's keeping those promises. And he's reminding people of that. That the promised king that's coming will fulfill all of this. He will fulfill all of this. And here in Isaiah 11, we get, we get further clarity about, about who this king is. Look again at verse 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. Right? This king will be a shoot from the stump of Jesse, okay? So the image is that of, of a felled tree, right? We, we've cut down, we chopped down the tree. It, it's gone, right? All, the tree appears to be, to be dead and gone, right? All signs of life have, have left. All that's left is the stump, right? And, and the roots that remain. And the promise is that fruitful life will spring forth from this, this stump that looks like nothing. Fruitful life will, will once again spring forth from its roots, and Jesse, of course, is, is who? He, he was the father of King David. Right? David was the son of Jesse. And at the time of Isaiah is, is writing this, we need to also know, 700 years before Christ, but it's 300 years after, after King David. Right? About 300 years after David was king. And, and there have been several kings from the house and the line of David who have come to the throne in that time in the span in between there, who have come to rule over the, the southern kingdom of, of Judah throughout the years. But not one of those kings, not a one of them, as you read through the scriptures, is ever referred to with any connection to Jesse. Not one of them. They're all, they're all held in comparison to, to David, right? They're compared with their father, David. That's what it says about them. They're, they're children of David. And, and it's kind of, that's the, the language that you see as you read about those kings. So, only David, only David himself is referred to as a son of Jesse, right, by his connection to Jesse. So this, this promised shoot of Jesse is not just another king in the line of David. 
This, this promised king is another David, right? He, he's another David. He's a true and better David that is coming. He's not just a king, but he is the king of kings is what that is saying to us. And if you look down at verse 10, if you skip all the way down to the very end in verse 10, he, he's not called a shoot of Jesse there. What does it say? It says, Isaiah calls him there the root of Jesse, the root. So he's a shoot and he's also the root. Um, I feel like I'm about ready to start rapping. Um, <laughs> that means not only does this, uh, does this king come from, from Jesse, but, but also that, that Jesse sprang forth from this king. That his origins, Jesse's origins, come forth from this one who is coming. It's just like what Jesus has to say in John chapter 8, verse 58. He, he says, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. You know, that's one of those clear moments where Jesus is not just claiming to be a good teacher. Uh, he, he's very much making a declaration about his divinity, about who he is. Before Abraham was, I am. So I've, I've always been, I've always existed before Abraham started this thing. You know, before God called Abraham and, and the, the people of Israel began, I existed before him, right? And not only does he say I'm, I'm before him, but he says, I am. Right? Not I was, before he, he was around, I was, I existed. No, he says before that, I, I am, which is a clear link to what, how God reveals himself to Moses in the wilderness when he's calling him to, to go and, and, and set the, lead the people out of slavery in Egypt. In other words, Jesus is very clearly saying in John eight fifty eight, I have always been, I am God, right? I, I am divine. He, he was born and, and yet he's always been. That's that's what Jesus is saying. That's what, that's what Isaiah is telling us here. He's both a man descended from the line of Jesse and David, and yet he's also God, the eternal son, the, the second person of the triune Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. One God, three persons, who, who exists eternally as three persons in this perfect relationship uh, and oneness of, of love and worship and community. One God, yet three distinct persons there. The second person of the Trinity. He's the eternal word. John chapter 1, right? By whom everything sprang forth into being. Everything is made by him and through him. He's the eternal word present at Genesis 1. How does God create? He creates by his word. The eternal word, the Son, Jesus Christ. The Messiah, Jesus, is the source of his own family tree is what Isaiah is telling us here, from which one day he would shoot forth. Isaiah highlights his divine nature all the more as he tells us about what he's, what he's like. Look at verses 2 through 5. It says, And the Spirit of the Lord uh, shall rest upon him, the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins." These are words describing a divine king, a divine king. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. And we've been going through the gospel of Mark this fall. What, what happens at the baptism of Jesus, right? Well, the clouds open and the spirit in the form of a dove descends upon him, rests 
upon him. And the voice of the Father from heaven speaks, this is my Son with whom I am well pleased. So the Spirit rests upon him. And, 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 and indwelled and filled with the Holy Spirit, this promised King, he, he will possess wisdom and understanding, the wisdom to rule rightly. He, he will possess counsel and might, the ability to set the right course of action and then see it through. He would possess the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, the ability to not only grasp truth, but to to also apply it perfectly to every aspect and area of life. And he would pour himself out for the glory of God. And that's what Jesus does. He empties himself out for the glory of God on the cross. And he possesses the ability to discern between appearances and reality. Like he... He does not look at the outward. No, he sees into the heart. He, he would be a king of justice, not swayed by favoritism, by, by your social standing, by where you were born or how much money you make or what you have or what you don't have. No, he will rule with divine justice and righteousness. He will judge fairly for those with and those without. And his word being divine carries with it the power to bring about all that it declares. All that it declares. The foundation and core of what he's like is summed up with the words righteousness, faithfulness. That's our king, right? That's who he is. And this is the promised king. Who he is and what he is like. And who he is is he's the God-man, Jesus Christ. who, Who is and who was and who is to come. That's who he is. But Isaiah continues showing us what he will bring, right? What he will bring. With several images, Isaiah shows us here that he will be a, a king of peace. Look at verses 6 through 8, right? This, this is not what you see when you watch National Geographic, right? Um, this is not what we see when you watch those wild kingdom shows that my dad used to make me watch when I was a kid. Um, and I was like, this is boring. Can we watch something else? Um, no, this is not what I saw in there. Like, I saw some stuff that scared me and messed me up when I was like seven. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of a cobra, Uh uh-uh, nope, Uh, and the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. But this is wild, right? The wolf and the lamb, the leopard with the young goat, the lion with the calf. Uh, you know, and not just a young calf. We're told it's like an extra tempting, juicy morsel, fattened calf. All right? That's right there with the lion. And the picture here is that of the predator and its prey living in perfect harmony together. Dwelling together. Lying down and taking a nap together. Right? And it's perfect peace. These, these are, these, this is the image of, of the, the predator and the prey living together in perfect peace. And then it says, a little child will, will lead them. A little child. It's so peaceful that not only is a small child safe with these wild animals, but he's even able to execute and exercise leadership over them. And then he mentions the cow with the bear also grazing peacefully together, as well as the lion eating straw like an ox, and all the vegetarians in the room rejoice, right? <laughs> but don't get too excited, because Isaiah's going to talk later in his, in his, his book here about how when, when Jesus returns in glory, we'll be feasting together with the, the finest of wines and the choicest cuts of meat, so it'll be, it's going to work out okay. Um, <laughs> the point isn't so much what everyone's eating, 
but rather that the most unlikely of partners, the most unlikely of partners are living together in God's perfect peace. And, and, and with the bear and the cow, he also mentions their young. Their young are lying down together. What does that mean? Well, that means that this isn't just a, a one-shot deal for a temporary period of time. But this is a permanent transformation. This will go on generation after generation after generation in, 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 in the kingdom of God when it comes in his fullness. Right? It carries on for all eternity. Now, verse 8 is a verse that requires a lot more faith for me, right? Because my name is Jones, and I live in Indiana, and I hate snakes, right? So that verse, like, I, even reading that verse is like, I, I get really creeped out about snakes. So I'm just like, ugh. Um, but it's talking about a nursing baby. A nursing baby. A, a baby that's not even walking yet. Crawling. Rolling over. The hole of a cobra, right? A, a completely helpless baby playing around something that's deadly and it's totally fine and it's totally fine and then he mentions a toddler right uh, a toddler if a, if a baby is helpless to danger then the average toddler does what runs directly toward danger aimlessly just like yeah that sounds like fun let's do that the street lots of cars let's go um right they run right to it and and, and here's the toddler sticking and putting his hand onto the adder's den a deadly snake. And, and what is this telling us? The curse of Genesis 3 is no more. Right? Where God tells the woman that her descendants will, there will be enmity between her descendants and the serpent. Right? There will be a divide. But that divide is no more. Right? Because the curse has been lifted. The, the, the curse has been destroyed. The serpent has been crushed. Right? He has been destroyed. The enmity that was there is now gone. And so what is described in these verses is perfect peace. Perfect peace. The reconciliation of old hostilities and the transformation of natures and the curse of sin and death being removed. Right? It's being removed. And what we have here is a description of the restoration of a broken world. This broken world. It's a return to Eden. Right? That, that's life in the garden. That's life in the garden before the fall. Perfect peace. Predator and prey together in harmony. Right? It's, it's perfection. But, but even more than a return to Eden, it's actually describing the world renewed and restored to become what Eden was meant to become had sin never entered into the picture. It, it's the development, the fullness of what Eden was meant to spread Right? The God's temple city, uh, was, the garden was meant to become God's temple city, and that temple city was meant to expand its borders to cover the entire face of the world. And that's what we see here. Verse 9, they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. God's holy mountain is no longer a place on a map. It's the whole map. It's the entire earth. It has expanded its borders. It covers the entire face of the world. It's all his. His perfect peace fills everything. Everything. And I don't know about you, but you know, I don't see a lot of this going on right now, right? Like you watch National Geographic. This is not what we see right now. Wolves and lambs are not friends. Um, lions and, and, and calves, especially fattened calves, not friends, right? Um, they're not just playing together. Uh, Isaiah is not just looking to the to the moment that Christ comes. He's looking beyond that. 
He's looking, beyond to, he's looking beyond the first advent of when Christ has come and was born in Bethlehem. And he's looking beyond to the second advent, the second coming of Christ, when he will return in glory and usher in his kingdom in all its fullness. Uh, th- these are not descriptions of the world at, in Bethlehem, like as it was at, in Bethlehem at the time of Jesus' birth. These are the descriptions of what the world will be when he comes again. And again, written 700 years before Christ is even born. And Isaiah is looking ahead beyond where we stand in history right now to the day that will surely come. And he says it will surely come. He's saying this will be. There's no doubt. There's no question. that Like this isn't a maybe. No, this is what is coming. Perfect peace is coming with our promised king when he returns in glory. And so despite how enormous, despite how enormous your anxieties may feel, Isaiah says, says there is a day. When, when they will be blown away like a kite in a tornado. And all that will be left is God's perfect peace. His perfect peace. Peace is what he brings. And he's pointing us also here to how, how we receive it. How we receive it. Even in the midst of this broken world filled with anxiety and, and struggle, we're pointing to how we might receive and enter into this peace even right now. And the key to that understanding this is, is again found in verse 9. He says there, The earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Now I want to be careful here today because I, I don't want to confuse or, or make anyone feel shame uh, about how they are dealing and walking with anxiety or depression in their life right now. We are absolutely not a church that would tell you that it is wrong for someone to seek out medical help like medications or, or professional counseling, if you are dealing with anxiety or, or depression, we, w- we would not say that that's wrong, right? In fact, there may be some good reasons for someone to seek out the help of medicine when they're dealing with some struggles like this. There are, in a broken world, in our broken bodies, there are chemical imbalances and things that, that come into play. And so that's not necessarily, it's not a sin to seek out that kind of help and to get that kind of help if it is needed and, and wanted and, and warranted, Right? And to be completely vulnerable with you, to make sure you understand that I'm, I'm not trying to shame you, there have been seasons in my own life when I've dealt with anxiety that I have, as part of the plan, taken some medicine to help with that, okay? That, that's, that's, that's for me, right? But that said, and for myself included in this, another reality is that even in the midst of that, that isn't the only answer or help for anyone, Right? That, that another reality is that much of our anxiety is due to our lack of knowledge of who Jesus is. Our lack of faith and trust in Christ. Right? Much of it's due to a lack of knowledge about who he, who he is, what he's done, and what he is bringing with him when he returns in glory. It's a lack of faith and trusting that he's doing that when he returns in glory. And I'm not saying it's only a lack of faith every time that someone struggles w- with this. But I'm saying that while seeking out professional counseling or possibly seeking out uh, medicine from your medical doctor uh, to, to help with a, something, um, you often need to go deeper than just that. You can't just stop there. You, 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 not often. You, you really always need to go deeper than that. Uh, a few weeks back, we were looking, uh, Nate Latimer was preaching on uh, Mark 4, the end of, of Mark 4, where Jesus calms the storm. 
and the disciples are in that boat. And that, that is an anxiety-ridden moment, right? They're in that boat. The storm kicks up on the lake. They think they're dead, right? They're, they're dying. Like, anxieties are high. But at the, at, by the end of the account, what happens? Well, Jesus, with his words, simply says what? Peace. Be still. And the storm is completely calm. And what that shows us is that the disciples' anxiety resulted in that moment, more not so much just from the immediate danger that they were facing, but from their lack of knowledge of who Jesus truly was and is. Right? The, some of their anxiety sprang from the fact that they didn't realize who this is that was on the boat with them and what he is capable of and, and what he is about. And, and they weren't really trusting in him in that moment, in, in all fullness. And to be fair, at that point in time, the disciples had not seen Jesus go to the cross. They hadn't seen Jesus rise from the grave resurrected in glory, or, you know, in a, in a glorious state, right? They hadn't, they hadn't witnessed that. Um, and, and for Isaiah and his original readers, like, they're staying at 700 years before Jesus is even born. But for you and for me, we stand at a different point in history where we can look back and we can read the words of God that tell us that our, our promised king has come and he has lived for us and he has died for us and he has risen in glory, Right? He has ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the throne of God. Right? We, can, we can cling to that and trust in that and have hope in that. That he has not only come, but he is coming again. Right? He is coming again. He was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago with angels announcing his birth saying, Glory to God in the highest and peace on earth. And Colossians 1, 19 and 20 tells us, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. We can stand here and know that Jesus has killed the hostility that stood between you and God, making peace between you and God through faith in him. We can stand here knowing that he killed the hostility that stands between us as peoples, Right? That he makes peace and reconciliation possible in his body, in his church. As we come to faith in him, reconciliation between all peoples is possible, right? In Christ. And it will be a, a done deal when he comes in glory. When, when John's vision that we see and read in, in Revelation chapter 7 is a reality that we will be living in, right? After this, I looked, he says, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. I love that passage. Because in that passage, you see some beautiful, beautiful things about how God weaves together this beautiful tapestry of, of us as peoples, right? And he makes us one. It says, with a loud voice, one loud voice, they cry together as one. Salvation belongs to our God. But yet, notice what John witnesses. He says, I see before the throne a multitude of every nation and tribe. In tongue. And so yet, yet this beautiful oneness, this beautiful tapestry is woven together. It is a beautiful tapestry because the distinctiveness remains. John can still identify nationality and ethnicity, race and culture. And he sees it all together. All of it represented as one before the throne of God. Perfect peace. It's beautiful. It's beautiful. 
by his life, death, and resurrection, Jesus has undone the curse, and he has ushered in his peace, even now. And, and even though we don't see all of it as it should be yet, he's coming again. And when he returns, that's coming in its fullness. The lion and the lamb and the calf, all peoples from every nation, tribe, and tongue together before the throne of God. Do you know that? Are you aware of who Jesus is? Do you believe that? Do you believe that that's, that's who he is, that's what he's done, that's what he's capable of, and that's what he will, in fact, do? Do you believe it? That knowledge, that sure hope, is what enables us to, even in the midst of the darkness that we live in right now, push back those anxieties with faith and trust, clinging to our Savior. Whatever you're going through right now, Jesus invites you to come to him and and cling to him and know his peace. His peace, which it says in Philippians 4, 7, surpasses all understanding, guarding your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. The apostle Peter in 1 Peter 5, 7 invites you to come casting all your anxieties onto Christ, onto him, because he cares for you. And he's shown you he cares for you and what he's done for you on the cross. And Jesus himself says to you in Matthew eleven twenty eight, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. At the end of, of Paul's letter to the second Corinthians, uh, Paul's letter, uh, the, Paul, Paul writing to the Corinthians in his second letter to them. I'm just tongue twister today. Um, he, he starts sharing about this thorn that he wrestles with. And we don't know what the thorn is. It, it, you know, who knows? We, we could speculate all kinds of things. But what he says about that thorn is that, you know, he prays for God to take it away again and again, right? Three times I prayed, and and the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. And I think what we we cling to in the midst of that is is we cling to the fact that, that his grace is sufficient, whatever we're going through. It is sufficient. And what Paul goes on to say there is that it is sufficient because his power is made perfect in my weakness. His power is made perfect in weakness. And we throw ourselves, we cast ourselves to him and enter into that rest, even in the midst of the despair and the suffering that we all walk through. Even now, Jesus invites you to come to him. Will you come? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, um, we thank you for this time to gather and to worship you. Lord, we pray that you would be our peace in this moment, in the midst of, of great anxiety and, and struggle, Lord, that we would, we would see you for who you are, that a knowledge of you would fill our hearts with hope and peace even in the midst of despair, even in the midst of, of great anxiety and struggle. Lord, you are good, and you are faithful, and you are righteous, and you have shown us how, how good and righteous you are by your life, death, and resurrection. Would you help us to cling to the hope and to the peace that's coming when you return in glory. And would you help us to live for you, knowing that your grace is sufficient and your power is made perfect in our weakness. Lord, would our weakness drive us to you? Would it drive us to love you more and cling to you all the more? And may it lead us to even worship you all the more and be thankful to you all the more. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.